Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased today to introduce Jonathan Lewis to the podcast. Jonathan has had a long and varied career and vocation as a social justice activist and social entrepreneur. He was founder of MCE Social Capital, an innovative social venture that finances small business loans to deeply impoverished people in 33 countries around the world. He's also founder and president of the Opportunity Collaboration, an annual global strategic business retreat for anti-poverty leaders, and also co-founder of Copia Global, an Amazon-like consumer catalogue. Jonathan has taught social entrepreneurship and lectured at universities around the world and is author of the newly published The Unfinished Social Entrepreneur, a candid and provocative account of the challenges and questions facing all social entrepreneurs. So thank you very much, Jonathan, for taking the time today to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Jonathan, it's a great honor to speak to you. Uh, You have a tremendous experience. You've been involved in the field of social innovation and social change, I guess, for before the, the term social entrepreneur was coined and you've, you've had a vantage point to see a lot of what's been going on and, and been involved in various ways yourself as, uh, as a social entrepreneur and, and in various different roles. So can you just tell me a little bit about your background and, and how you got started? I started... Uh, in my high school years in San Francisco, California, as a concerned citizen, a concerned student uh, about uh, the American war in Vietnam. And I became an activist in that movement, and that led immediately to concerns um, about racial justice in the United States. And so I became a volunteer in the civil rights movement, nothing fancy. I was just a young boy, so it was simple volunteer work, stuffing envelopes and leafleting and wearing a peace button or wearing a button from the Congress of Racial Equality or things like that. But what it taught me was that every single person, whatever their skill level, can make a difference, can make a contribution, and that has just stuck with me through my whole life. So that's how I got started. Great, great. And and when was that roughly? Uh, that was the 60s and in, 70s. In the <laughs> 60s and 70s, yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess the, the idea of social change, social activism um, has evolved uh, quite a lot over that period. We said that it's the, whole, the whole field of social entrepreneurship is relatively new. Um, and what, 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 what inspires you about social entrepreneurs, Jonathan? The same thing that inspired me about what we used to call community organizers or social activists or uh, political leaders of conscience or anyone else who steps up and sees an injustice in the world, uh, uh, an inequality, a lack of opportunity, uh, an unfairness, and speaks truth to power. There's something just... Um, very ennobling about that, very um, heart, uh, heart-filling about that, and that's what inspires me. And whether it's happening at a very micro level or a larger macro 
picture, what we now say operating at scale, uh, either one is just uh, moves moves the human uh, moves the human heart, and uh, that inspires me. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, what do you think is the distinct contribution that social entrepreneurs can can bring to solving social problems? And I'm, I'm, I guess I'm we're not get caught, too caught up in jargon and language and and, and 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 terms and things. But the idea of bringing, I guess, you know, business type ideas, business models, and and, and I guess a more business orientation, even if it's not always for profit, um, you know, to to social change. Well, let's distinguish between um, true entrepreneurship and business. Um, the business in and of itself, I don't think has all that much to bring <laughs> to the social justice movement. A lot of what we're doing is cleaning up the messes created by business. Now, not business alone. There's mistakes by government. There are mistakes by uh, faith-based organizations, there's a lot of mistakes that need cleaning up. Um, some we inherit, some we create on our own. So business as a model for us to emulate is not all that attractive to me. What's attractive about the notion of entrepreneurship, and again, these are just coded words that can mean different things to different people, is that it's a methodology, it's a technique. It starts with listening carefully to community, uh, or customers or clients, um, those that we uh, want to work with and partner with to create a better world. And then it involves iterating solutions, testing something, trying it out, seeing what works, not being tied to a particular ideology or a particular uh, solution, not falling in love with our own uh, grand ideas, uh, staying real about things and constantly working to improve, and tying that with some, um, in, in a lot of cases, tying that to some revenue model that is financially sustainable, if not in whole, at least in part, so that the enterprises that we create grow and um, grow to reach more and more people. We're not trying to become financially sustainable because we want to emulate uh, the profit motive per se, but we do realize that there's an awful lot of people in the world who need our uh, programs and assistance and social ventures, and it just, it's just nice to be able to have a, a, a reliable revenue stream um, to to uh, extend our, our model to more and more people. So that's what it means to me, but at the heart of it, and I just don't want to lose this point, is it's all rooted in our it's all it's all tied back to a fundamental sense of what it means to live in a just society. Yes. And the operative word in social entrepreneurship is not entrepreneurship. The operative word is social. And what we think a a uh, a society should look like, how to make it inclusive, how to to uh treat everybody fairly everyone have equal opportunity, and so forth and so on. And uh, I think sometimes the field of social entrepreneurship, I know we'll get into this later, um, gets a little hung up on the methodology of entrepreneurship without enough emphasis on the, um, the, the, the values that, that bind us together. 
Yes, yes. Certainly, uh, that's something I, I, I'd be very interested in getting your thoughts on. How healthy do you think the field of social entrepreneurship is? It's been evolving. Um, there's a lot of money come into the field. There's a lot of impact investment of various kinds. Um, a lot of a lot of change. There's hybrid uh, business models. There's more for-profit business models. It's a pretty broad church. Are there one or two thoughts you have on 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 how how healthy you think that the world of social entrepreneurship is? Uh, I'm schizophrenic on that question. Half of me thinks that it's very healthy. In the same way, the bicycle industry was healthy before the invention of the automobile, which is to say there's a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of little bicycle shops everywhere, a lot of different kinds of bicycles, uh, one wheel unicycles and bicycles and tricycles and all kinds of efforts to improve the model. And it's evolving into a transportation system eventually uh, that we now know today as the auto industrial complex but we're still at the bicycle stage. So it's healthy in that sense. Uh, It's dynamic, Uh, people are taking risks, people are looking for new ways to be effective. Um, We don't yet know where it's gonna grow to, and part of its charm and and allure is that very fact. On the other side of the split screen, my other, is some some deep concerns that, that we're not asking ourselves very tough questions. We're so busy inventing our next social venture that we're not taking a pause to ask ourselves what our particular contribution is to the field. So let me give you some examples. Um, The field is far too Western focused. It's far too uh, class based, which is to say, if you've been to a great university, and you happen to be a a person with a white skin color, and you have access to certain, to financial resources, you're more likely to be able to become a social entrepreneur than someone who has graduated from a more modest university, maybe a more, less of a brand name university, and is carrying a lot of student debt, and maybe is the first person in your um, family to go to college. You're, 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 you don't have the flexibility and the luxury of becoming uh, uh, that risk-taking social entrepreneur. There's no uh, financial safety cushion underneath you. So the field is skewing towards a certain kind of um, profile, which I think is disturbing because we purport to, um, to be working in communities <laughs> that uh, need a, a greater uh, diversity of voices. Uh, to, to work in them. So that, that's a, a concern. I think that in the impact investing space, we are, um, there's a fork in the road, and uh, that fork is described by uh, those who think the purpose of impact investing is uh, to create economic opportunity um, and uh, a business activity in the developing world, largely, or in inner cities in industrialized nations. Um, And then there are others who are characterizing it around the need to create an asset class that returns so-called market returns. Uh, I'm I'm dubious that those two ideas can live in harmony. 
I know that people think that it can, but largely that's a theoretical commitment. I haven't seen it proven out in reality. The tough choice of how much profit is enough remains uh, uh, an unanswered question in impact investing. Jonathan Swift, the Irish poet, said man should have money in his head, not in his heart. And I don't know that when I show up at conferences to talk about impact investing, that people are, at, uh, are, are mindful of that, that caution. So those are concerns I have. But again, I go back to the basic point. We're in a trial and error period. And I'm okay with that, those ambiguities for now. Right, right. That's very interesting. Right. I'm interested also in the question um, you mentioned the, the the little bike uh, bike makers and and and, yeah. and the, what about the question of scale and how important is that? I, I know uh, it's a recurring theme in 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 the field, and not that many uh, social enterprise have really reached uh, you know uh, grand scale, you might say, and it's a, a continuing question. What's your thoughts on the importance of scale? Or it's still an early stage, as you say. And are we? Are we? Is is scale important? And um, you know, yeah. I think we worry way too much about scale. Um, as a, again, at a theoretical level, it's easy to get wrapped up in it. Billions of people. Um, are not part of the economic, have not got their, their feet on the first step on the economic ladder, right? So there's this instinct to want to do more, to be bigger, point one. Point two, our individual enterprises need some um, measure of scale just to operate efficiently. Otherwise, the unit costs for what we do become astronomical. We need so many... Uh, micro loan borrowers for a microfinance institution to be financially viable. We need so much, so many uh, purchasers of our um, arts and crafts that we're importing from the developing world to cover our overhead and so forth and so on. So that kind of uh, business modeling and scaling makes perfect sense, and it also makes perfect sense for our hearts to be moved by the enormity of the problems we face. Beyond that, I don't think the, the social entrepreneurs have yet come to grips with the fact that, as Frederick Engels said, quantity changes quality. And we know from watching all kinds of large institutions, the military, businesses, um, multinational corporations, faith-based organizations. Name a large institution in our society which has not been radically changed as it has grown bigger. It loses, to use a, a cliche phrase, it loses the common touch. And, um, and, and then there's a pendulum, right? Then new management comes in and they say, oh, we need to get more customer focused and all that. And if anybody has any doubts about this, look at the airline industry which has managed to consolidate and grow and be at scale and cover the earth with you know, this wonderful device which moves us all over the place uh, comparatively simply and easily and mostly reliably without falling out of the sky very often, but treats people like they're a pile of shit. It's ridiculous. 
And we need to be careful that we don't become the airline industry. Yes. Working at scale and treating people like shit. Yes, yes. Uh, and to go back, if I could just add a coda to that, that's my concern about impact investing, which is it feels like it's on a headlong rush to be at scale, bigger funds, more money, bigger profits, demonstrate to this imaginary pension fund manager with a, a stone heart that uh, we can return these astronomical profits. And I wonder if the end result of that is that we're just going to become another <clears throat> uh, extractive, exploitive uh, financial instrument. And uh, someday we too will be able to say impact investing is as good as Citibank. And that is not a tagline I look forward to. No, absolutely not. And you definitely hear stories from social entrepreneurs at the front line that they are that that they feel that they should be looking for more for-profit models, and they should be trying to find ways of making profits. And that clearly has an impact on the kinds of projects that people are exploring, developing, and the kinds of projects that get funded, which raises big questions about some of the, the real challenges which don't necessarily have um, revenue streams or have modest revenue streams um, that, that, need, that, need, but that badly need help. Well, that's entirely correct. And I think it's a, uh, a, a genuine and heart, a heartfelt and true concern. Um, not everything worth doing is profitable, period. And so we need to ask ourselves, um, whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit organization, if you're looking for a way to be profitable in the sense that you have earned income from investments or product sales or whatever, you need to ask yourself, is that all that I need to be doing, right? It'd be as if you were a museum and the only thing you operated was the museum gift shop, but you never had any open free art exhibits for people to see. I mean, it was, it's a ridiculous uh, way to think about the world. And worse, it's a ridiculous way for us to think about who we want to be as uh, advocates for uh, social justice and advocates for the field of social entrepreneurship. It's just too narrow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I want to move on to your book, Jonathan. I have one big last last overarching type question, if you don't mind. Impact. Impact. This is something, you know, where, uh, again, early days, but there's a lot of work going on on measuring impact. I mean, people talk about impact-led organizations, impact-led investment. But one area where clearly social entrepreneurship is different is this, this focus uh, in an ideal way on impact, on, you know, helping people, social impact. And uh, quite some thought is going into that, how to assess impact, how to evaluate impact. What's your sense of the relative importance of that and how things are progressing? Um, my sense is it's not very important, and I know I'm a heretic on this, but I'm terribly suspicious. I'm not an expert on this, so I, I'm very uh, cautious about my comments, so I characterize them as suspicions. Not, not decisions or not conclusions. But I have a suspicion that largely um, 
we're looking for external confirmation that what we're doing is making a difference when the place to be looking for that is not on not inside Western finance, Western implemented studies, but in the communities in which we're operating face to face with the people with whom we should be partnering in an open, honest dialogue. That's a lot harder to do and a lot scarier. It's a lot easier to read a report and it's a lot easier to fund a report. But I think largely those reports are being funded from our own insecurities because we're not in uh, tight dialogue with the communities we serve all the time. Now, you know, that makes it a broad generalization, sir. So that's one concern I have. The second concern I have is just my, um, uh, I, I guess the way I put it is, what, where is the randomized controlled, controlled trial that demonstrates that all these social impact reports, social evaluations, academic studies, themselves are making a difference? And my point there is, I think they all presume that decision makers are essentially uh, rational, the analog to the uh, rational economic decision maker. And I don't think that's actually true. I think that most funders, most social entrepreneurs, most social activists, most of us, and I'm certainly in this camp, operate out of um, a much more complex series of uh, decision factors. And, you know, if, if, um, if, if policymakers and decision makers were rational, we wouldn't have science matters. We wouldn't have uh, half the problems we have in the world, but we're not. And these studies presume that boards of directors and senior management and all that are, are rational decision makers, and I'm, I'm dubious uh, that that's the case. So I, I have a lot of doubts that this effort, this channel, this energy that we're putting into um, external evaluations it's going to amount to much. Now, let me be very clear. I do think, and I'm a big believer in management, getting uh, outside input, getting studies done where they A-B test different particular methodologies. Um, but that's a little different than these larger studies that seem to... Um, um, seem to result in uh, a study that is very context-specific and largely result in a, in a conclusion that says, now we need to, to study it again. And my last concern is, as a field, we have not addressed the problem of what we do when there's a bad study. You know, we all want to believe that our doctor is, is, never makes a mistake, that, that, that um, our lawyer is 100% competent that uh, every, every restaurant worker washes their hands before they serve, cook and serve meals. But we know that's not true. There's, a, there's a, some percentage of all human activity has failure built into it. So when we do, uh, when an impact study emerges where it's flawed, how do we know that now? You know, in, in regular, regular science, it's sort of bad. <laughs> bad English, but the normal scientific method is to do an experiment and redo it, and it becomes something that's replicable, and after a period of time, the scientific consensus about what we consider to be true 
emerges. We don't do that in the social sector. These studies are largely one-off, and if you're on the if you're a social entrepreneur and you're on the receiving end of a negative study, which typically are the ones that get all the, the media attention, uh, short of sounding very defensive, there's no recourse. You don't have budget to challenge it. You don't have internal expertise to raise questions. Funders typically don't fund these studies um, more than once. And so you're stuck with this flawed study. You may not even realize it's flawed. How do we find out? Who's evaluating the evaluators? So I have a lot of suspicions and worries about this. Um, but it's not my field, and I realize that the people who are working in it are people who are well-motivated. They're trying to do the best they uh, make a contribution with the skills and knowledge they have. And so it's not an attack on them, but I am definitely dubious. So the unfinished social entrepreneur, Jonathan, can you tell me a little bit about this? I guess, what, why is it unfinished? Because I'm unfinished. I'm, I'm a 69-year-old American male who um, is in the middle of a career as a changemaker, a change agent, a, uh, trying to lead a better life, lead a life of conscience in a world that's largely dishonorable and troubling to me. Uh, and this is, of course, even more true with the election of our current uh, president in the United States of America. Um, and and so I feel my work is unfinished. And the questions I talk about in my book are questions I don't have absolute answers to. So yes. while this book was a conviction uh, uh, for me, it was uh, uh, something I did because I feel strongly about the issues I raised, I feel equally strongly that I don't have all the answers. And so, the unfinished social entrepreneur. It also happens to be that one of my favorite pieces of uh, music is Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. So, I, I, I like the title. Great, great. Well, I very much enjoyed the book, Jonathan, and it's full of rich insights, and you smuggle in a lot of wisdom and experience and uh, guidelines in there, and uh, yeah, very uh, interesting and uh, a must-read, really, for anyone, I think, uh, in the social uh, change, social activist, social entrepreneurial world. Now, why did you write it? You know, how do you go about synthesizing, you know, your wide-ranging experience over your career into a book? Ah, okay. Well, the, 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 the linear answer is that actually I did not want to write a book. All my life I've thought of myself as an activist, a doer, not a writer. Uh, but I had been doing social entrepreneurship during this phase of my life. For about 10 years, I've done a number of social venture startups, which I'm very proud of and which have uh, matured into successful social enterprises. Um, one in the microfinance field, which now operates in 33 countries, uh, a global business retreat of economic justice leaders, which uh, brings 450 um, um, for-profit and nonprofit leaders and funders together for a four-day business retreat every year um, and uh, uh, a project in Nairobi, Kenya, and so forth. So anyway, the point is I'd done 
a bunch of things and I was tired and I was planning to take a little bit of a break. And what I quickly learned in our field is that nobody understands the idea that you want to take a sabbatical. This is some strange word in the world of social entrepreneurship. And nobody believed me that I wanted, I just needed some time off. What I learned is that when you said you were taking time off to write a book, everybody understood that. And so they, <laughs> so they let me alone. And uh, basically for six months, I just lied to people. Basically, <laughs> they say, what are you doing? I say, I'm writing a book. But actually, I was just taking a nap in my hammock. And, but eventually, uh, it, it kind of gained momentum. I, uh, to collect some thoughts, I wrote some stuff down. Uh, and then I met a wonderful editor, um, the uh, publisher of uh, Red Press in the United Kingdom. And she started coaching me on actually how to organize and write a book and how to write a chapter. And one thing led to another. And the next thing I knew, I was writing a book. That was kind of what happened. Absolutely. Who's the audience for the book in your mind, Jonathan? Uh, yes. Well, this is a great social entrepreneurial story. The original audience for the book were idealistic students um, at the beginning of their careers. And uh, students is probably too narrow. Idealistic young people at the beginning of their career. Students, people just out, uh, uh, maybe about to go into Peace Corps, people who uh, are working on their, you know, between uh, just finished an internship, whatever. But, you know, let's just say in their mid-20s. As it turns out, uh, in the process of writing the book, the more I wrote, the more I started to talk about things that I felt deeper and deeper about. And the book that got produced actually is for a much wider audience. And people who are reading it are now telling me on the feedback loop that you get as a social entrepreneur that the true audience for the book is people who've already had some life experience as change makers. They've either been in the field or they've run a small nonprofit or maybe they've worked in a um, social venture as the number two or number three person that you need a little bit of worldly experience to, to uh, appreciate some of the questions that some of the chapters are answering. So what has happened, not intentionally, but it's what the book is, is the first essays, I'm just going to make up a number here, the first seven or eight essays are very, um, uh, are tailored to that beginning social entrepreneur. The, the, the rest of the essays, the dozen or so remaining essays, tend to be more appropriate for, um, or more accessible, more readily understandable for um, social entrepreneurs who've been out there a little bit and gotten beaten up or bloodied or had some uh, experiences like that. So. Right, right. So what were a few of the key decisions you, you had to make writing the book? Because as you say, this was a journey where you, you found yourself talking about and thinking about issues that meant a lot to you, that, that you realized yes. you had deep feeling about and views about. And at the same time, I guess, like anybody who's producing something for somebody else to read or to, you know, to engage with, one needs to think a little bit about you know, what their concerns are, I guess, to some extent. So I'm just wondering about some of the decisions that you, you, you made about, you know, how to write the book. 
Well, uh, let's see. I guess the quick answer to that is I actually never did focus on the audience. Um, and in fact, I threw out the full, it took me two years to write the book and the full first year of writing that I did, um, I basically threw in the garbage can because the first, my first instinct was in fact to pay attention to the audience. And I wrote in a style, uh, uh, using a vocabulary and, uh, um, a thought process, which I, uh, we're all taught to do in college, which is you write uh, abstractly. Uh, you don't personalize it. You uh, write in a very uh, pedantic and uh, declarative way, and you carefully uh, make sh- uh, craft things so that you're discussing the it rather than your involvement with what it is you care about. And I actually then was listening to an an imaginary audience, which was all the people I respect, my peers. And to be blunt, I was trying to impress them. I wanted the book to sound impressive. After a year of that, I realized that when I would reread a chapter, it didn't mean anything to me. It was so detached from my own strong uh, feelings and my vulnerability as a change agent, the things that bother me, the things that hurt me, the things that trouble me, and the people I care about. And so when I realized that, I didn't, um, I took the same topics, but I went back and rewrote every one of them as I would talk to you about them on our third beer or uh, late at night stuck in an airport after we missed the flight or in a hurried taxi ride from a conference that had stimulated our thinking as we were trying to get everything out quickly before because we knew we weren't going to see each other for a couple of months and we wanted to really share some some pithy thoughts on what we um, concerned us or what we found exalting or happy making and when i was writing in that mode it just felt the words flowed faster and i felt more honest and uh, i decided to to leave those on the page. So that was the process. That's a real quality of the book that you definitely get a sense of, a strong sense of, and this candidness, this this uh, willingness, even not to just look back on the mistakes, or not mistakes, but the judgments one made earlier in one's career 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and now one's, you know, wise and, you know, knows the answers, but this continuous assessment and looking and thinking and, and, and evaluating and, and I guess, you know, weighing up, you know, things that could be done better continuously. And I guess that is at the heart of being a social entrepreneur as well, isn't it? This idea that, you know, you continuously have to, you know, think about, you know, what can I do better? How can I improve things? What, you know, what needs to be improved? And I guess, you know, people talk about um, and resilience being a great quality in a, any entrepreneur, but I guess particularly in a social entrepreneur. But Clearly, this self-questioning or this honest, honest uh, appraisal is important too. Is is that true in your experience? Um, I'm thinking that's a tough question. I'm uh, I'm hesitant to answer to, to, to because the reason I'm hesitating is that I feel like these words, resilience, character, you know, all of these things. Uh, it's a little bit, it's, the analogy I use is um, 
you, you don't learn to swim by studying hydro, hydraulic engineering. You learn to swim by getting in the water and practicing. And so I don't know if resilience in and of itself is either a teachable or learnable skill in a book. It probably is not. But what I think is true is that if we're not thinking about learning resilience, but we're all in on whose side we're on, if we pick a side in the long um, eternal struggle for economic and social justice and environmental justice, and we're clear about that, we anchor ourselves in a community or on the side of the underdog. If we are tied to that, if it's real people in our mind that we care about, the question of resilience is irrelevant because we are resilient, because we have no choice. The, the, the moments of, quote, failure are failures of methodology or a particular program or something that didn't quite work out right because the timing was off or maybe I didn't have the particular skills to implement something at that moment in time. But those are small things relative to the lifelong commitment of a social entrepreneur to the principles of social justice, period, full stop. So that's all it, uh, that's what comes to mind when you ask that question. It's a very powerful way of looking at it, Jonathan, keeping it very focused and very simple, uh, very direct. I mean, let, let, let me, uh, at the danger of uh, political incorrectness here, I think a lot of these issues that we talk about, once we get away from the abstraction, the nearest analogy is a love affair, a romance. We've all had that experience. Let's go, if, if I'm bonded to someone, whether it's my wife or my son or a dear, a lifelong close friend, I, I'm resilient in that relationship. And the particular moments of miscommunication or failure or disappointment don't outweigh the larger long-term commitment that I've made. To go back to your evaluation question, I also don't evaluate that relationship with a spreadsheet, keeping track of how many times one person did this and another person did that and what I did and what they did. And it, it's not reduced to a numeric. There is a, a deeper kinship that we feel. And for the social entrepreneur, to go back to what I said before, the operative word is social. We feel a social kinship. We we are social animals on steroids. And that's where the empathy gene comes from. That's where the sense of kindness comes from. And it's empathy and kindness, which is the foundation for developing our ideas about justice and what is a fair and equitable society. And I don't, I think if you're constantly, um, you sh we should be constantly uncertain about the work we do and humble about it and never uncertain about what our values are. That's powerful advice. Thank you, Jonathan. That's uh, worth, worth thinking about. Um, now you say in the book, and I like this, listening is the industrial spying of social change. <laughs> right. And 
I, I think that's very nicely put. Um, you often hear people talk about, and you see people, you know, falling victim to what you might call solutionitis, you know, spending too much time thinking about solutions. Um, and certainly when I've spoken to social entrepreneurs, many have spent tremendous amounts of time really trying to understand the world in which they're working, try to understand the ecosystem, try to understand why the status quo is as it is. So really, you know, getting a feel for that. And I guess listening in a sense, can you just talk a little bit about the importance of listening? Well, I have a whole chapter in the book that I call listenership. And the reason I gave it a whole chapter is it's such a foundational skill. And it's a skill you're never good enough at. You're always improving your listening skills. You can start practicing them yesterday, and pretty much you'll be practicing them till you take your last breath. And the reason they're so important, or it's so important, it, is that it's the foundation for everything that a social entrepreneur does. It's the foundation, first of all for networking, which is just another, which is a professionally sanitized word for building community, building your own personal community. Um, it's the foundation for fundraising. It, because if you can't listen to somebody, uh, you can't figure out what their interests are, which means you can't figure out uh, how to, to uh, frame your uh, so-called pitch to, to interface with what their interests are. It's the foundation for listening, listening rather, it's the foundation for connecting and partnering with a community that you're working with. Listening is the way, the feedback loop that lets us know when we've uh, gone off the rails, when we're, when we're operating on a, on a, on a, um, um, uh, a bad set, a data set. Listening is just valuable in a million ways. And one of the things I point out in my book, and people don't like to talk about this, listening is also a manipulative skill for that forms the basis of persuasion. If I can't listen to an audience, if I can't listen to another person and hear what they're about, then I'm not collecting any data about what their, uh, uh, to, to put this in a kind of harsh way, what their vulnerabilities are, what or put nice in a nicer way, what their uh, core motivations are, which means I, I have no way to calibrate um, my um, uh, presentation to them. So I frequently will tell uh, young social entrepreneurs that they should worry less about writing the perfect business plan, worry less about um, uh, developing their 30-second elevator pitch and all of that malarkey. It's good to be able to do all those things. But what's really good is to learn to ask a question. If you can ask a good question of somebody and get them interested in you, that's the beginning of a conversation. And conversations lead to partnerships and alliances and collaborations and coalitions and the things that strengthen us. Because we can't do this work alone. You have to do it with other people. And asking a good question is is much more critical. And amusingly enough, if you ask questions about people, because people are very interested in themselves, they typically think that you're exceptionally smart and very charming. 
<laughs> yes. And, yes. Right? Yes. Yes, you know, indeed. You can't, right? You, yeah. I mean, people who go out to be charming usually aren't. We see right through them. We see it's a facade. You can't pretend to be charming, but you can be genuinely interested in other people, and those other people will think you're charming. Yes, yes, yes. Now, what are, in your experience, a few, would you say, important or useful power questions, questions you call what are useful, strong questions that are helpful for social entrepreneurs? Is that maybe too wide a question, but I don't know whether, I'm sure you, you have a few thoughts on that, Jonathan. I mean, there's one set of questions if you're going to a village of 300 people in the Bolivian Andes, right? I mean, they're... they're you're on a fact-finding mission to learn what the community needs are, what the community interests are, and you need a set of questions which uh, don't lead people into a predetermined answer, right? Aeneas Nin, the erotic novelist, uh, says, we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. And so when we show up, we have, uh, you know, interview bias in effect, right? If we have funding, for a healthcare project, and we show up in a village and say, "What are your healthcare needs?" Yes, we've asked the question, and yes, we're going to get uh, maybe authentic answers about what the needs of that community are around health. But perhaps we, our peripheral vision isn't very large, and what the community really needs is clean water, which, of course, would also have a huge uh, and universal impact on the health outcomes of that community, but we didn't ask the broad enough questions because we're filtering them through our own uh, preconceived biases and the biases of our funders, <laughs> which are equally a problem. Anyway, that's one audience. If you're at a, a impact investing conference and you're, you have a, uh, uh, an impact investing vehicle and you're trying to raise capital, it's, a, it's an entirely different kind of question that, that you're going to be asking people. I generally, just as a general principle, the thing I want to know the most from every single person I meet, wherever they are on the earth, all seven and a half billion of them, is what are their genuine interests? What turns them on? If it's model railroading, great. If it's stargazing, great. If it's clean water, great. Whatever it is, I just want to hear what that is because that's the beginning of an honest, authentic dialogue because then I could say what really turns me on is economic justice for impoverished women in the developing world. And is there a linkage here? Is there anything you're doing and I'm doing where we can support each other? Most of the time, the answer is not really. But once in a while, there is. And, you know, that's good. Then we can work together. Right, right. Thank you. But this is, yeah, this is a very, yes. I don't want to call it situational, but it's an attitude. Yes. You just, I'll tell you what doesn't work, just to get this out there. What doesn't work is, the first thing out of your mouth is, this is what I'm doing, and I'd like to tell you about it, and here's my 50-page business plan, and w will you read it? That <laughs> never works. I can tell you that. That is, the, when I get that happening at a meeting or somewhere. I, 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 it's amazing how many excuses I can make up to be busy. 
It's my it's a core skill set I have is making up excuses. <laughs> now you talked about listening as a foundation skill. I was wondering, is there one or two other foundation skills that you might uh, like to talk about? Maybe that are neglected for a social entrepreneur. Well, I don't know if it's a skill, but it's certainly important. Um, we need to be more inclusive in our management teams. The, the sector in, uh, uh, it, it, it is precariously close to becoming, uh, so white social entrepreneurs only need apply. And by that, I mean, if you go to the, our, our conferences and our meetings and our programs, up on stage, we're quite good about uh, inviting speakers and experts and panelists who reflect the, 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 the diversity of the world we aim to serve. But if you look out in the audience, that's not usually the case. And if you, what typically happens in our social enterprises when we're working on them, because we don't have a lot of money and we're just getting started and you need to you know, get moving, you turn to the people who are in your immediate social circle to help you out, to be on your board, to be part of your team, to volunteer, to help you raise money, and so forth. But since we live in largely still segregated communities throughout the world, um, it tends to be people who are in your same class and racial and uh, uh, life experience group. And I think that is a real danger for us as a sector. Um, it, it, it's just an easy trap to fall into. So I think an important early skill to learn is asking who's not in the room. And I can tell you from long experience that just asking the question opens up lots of doors. And uh, we need to be opening up more doors. And sometimes you can't solve the problem. I mean, the practical reality is if you, if you have a budget for three people and they each need to have very specific skill sets, um, you may not be able to have a, um, a leadership team that's as diverse as you might like it. Or maybe you can't find people who want to volunteer their time to be on your board in the early days. And so you really are asking favors from uh, people in your close-knit circle. It's a process. There's, we don't need to beat each other up about it. We just need to be mindful that we're not as good as a sector as we should be. And we can do some specific things to improve. And I write about this a lot in my book in a chapter called um, White, which reflects my own skin color, of course. <laughs> yes, yes. I would advise uh, all listeners to, 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 to read this book and to, to read in, in more detail what you say on these, these um, let, important issues. And uh, let, let, yeah. let me interrupt you to just say this. I feel so strongly about this that if your listeners want to send me an email and go to my website, jonathancelewis.com, and on that in the website is my email address. If they want to send me an email uh, and just ask for a copy of that chapter, I will just send them that chapter so they can read it and reflect on their own uh, opportunities to make our the social entrepreneurship sector more diverse and, and richer and more inclusive. 
Right. Do that, everybody. Now, where can listeners buy the book and what can they do to help get the message out there, Jonathan? Uh, there are two ways to buy the book, simply. One, and it's our preferred way because we're donating all the profits from the book to social justice causes and the most uh, 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 funds for that purpose uh, are generated if you go to the publisher's website. It's Red Press, R-E-D, like the color Red Press, um, and purchase the book or go to my website and there's bunches of links that will lead you eventually to my publisher. Um, or you can just go to Amazon, which is equally as good, but not as good for the social justice causes because Amazon obviously takes a share of the profit. And I should tell your listeners that for today only, there is a terrific discount. Normally the book costs $4,642.95, but today only, uh, well, actually for today and going forward, it's nineteen dollars and ninety-five cents. It's very, uh, very astute, astute marketing yeah. there, yeah. Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, really. It's <laughs> so. W- w- what's next for you, Jonathan? Yeah, I, I guess you know that. Uh, which is to go back to some of the other stuff. One of the reasons we know that people are not rational economic decision makers. If you go into a supermarket and they put signs around that say "everyday low prices" on on products, people will buy more of them. That's Even right. though if you think about it, the price is exactly the same every day, low prices. But for some reason, if you stick that in front of a box of cereal, people will buy more cereal. So the everyday low price for the book is nineteen ninety-five. <laughs> very good, very good. And what's next for you now, Jonathan? Ah, um, I am going to um, – I have a, a busy uh, few months before the year wraps up. Uh, but I am committing myself in 2018 to focus the bulk of my energy to doing old-fashioned political campaign work in the United States of America to in the 2018 midterm congressional elections because I would like to see a check and balance, a political firewall to um, stop the worst of the Trump administration. And I think if you're a social entrepreneur and you're an American citizen, it's the single most important thing we can do um, to preserve the things we care about. Whether you're an internationalist and you care about family planning for impoverished women in the developing world, whether you care about climate change, whether you care about racial justice in the United States, whether you care about war and peace and conflict uh, resolution, you, you pick an issue, and you will do more good by electing a, uh, an American Congress that, is, uh, that has the guts and the courage to stand up to Donald Trump than any single other activity you pursue in 2018. And as an American citizen, you get the privilege of doing both. You can uh, be a political activist, and you can also run your social enterprise or whatever else you're doing with your time. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that, Jonathan. And thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us and share your insights and um, all your thoughts and advice and wisdom for social entrepreneurs. I I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you. It was uh, 
uh, uh, both fun and uh, made me think harder. And for that, I appreciate you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.